Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is Medical Director Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And I have one of our district chiefs here at MCHD, Spencer Hall. Thanks for joining us, Chief. Thanks for having me. And today we're going to do a little more myth-busting. We like to do some myth-busting every now and again on the podcast. And today we're going to take a deep dive into something that we've not talked about here on the podcast for several years. So this one stems from really a cool case that I reviewed recently and led me into a little bit of a rabbit hole, did a little bit of anaphylaxis looking and found an absolutely stellar reference. And I know y'all are sick of hearing me talk about the literature (laughs) and references and Hey, read this article. It'll be in the show notes. (laughs) It is in the show notes. And I know when I say things are in the show notes that nobody listens and nobody goes to the show notes, but this is not an article bogged down with positive and negative predictive factors and you know i even read it i thought it was good yeah there's there's not uk paper not a ton of not a ton of stats it's just some really excellent common sense about anaphylaxis and some of the perceptions of anaphylaxis compared with the realities and this is an absolute deadly condition this is something that we see and we take care of not every single day but this is out there and there's some repeated myths and dogma that persist there's some areas from an ems and emergency medicine emergency care standpoint across the board that we can improve so let's bust away first and foremost in the in the rate limiting step a lot of times with anaphylaxis and i want to be clear we're talking about anaphylactic shock we're talking about true anaphylaxis, which is a small portion of all the allergic reactions that we see. My analogy is this is kind of like status epilepticus. We see tons of seizures and we learn how to take care of seizures and recognize them. And there's that small fraction that require more attention, that status. Mm-hmm. In anaphylaxis and allergic reactions, we see tons of hives and urticaria. But true anaphylaxis is, is and requires a separate diagnostics and separate diagnostic criteria. So here they are. The way to think about this is to remember that the sicker the patient is, the less checkboxes you have to get to. So if you have shock and an allergen, it's anaphylactic shock. You don't have to go any further down the line. And we'll talk a little bit about what about the rash, Doc? Well, that that will lead into that one. The other two biggies within anaphylactic shock are angioedema and wheezing, respiratory compromise, bronchoconstriction. So if you have two of any of the big three, so the big three are going to be shock, respiratory, facial angioedema. If you have two of the three and an allergen, you have anaphylaxis. The other pieces of the puzzle are going to be, you know, the skin rash and vomiting is another underappreciated symptom of anaphylaxis remember that we're talking about vomiting plus skin vomiting plus lungs vomiting plus hypotension and an allergen to get to a diagnosis of anaphylaxis the formal united states definition is a little bit different than the european definition this is definitely one for the show notes and for you to look at because it gets confusing and really that simplified version is me speaking to the mchd medics out there i understand that if you're going to be a stickler that there is some variation there but just remember if you've got shock and an allergen you've got anaphylactic shock 
Think about the big three, facial swelling, wheezing, and shock. If you've got two of those without an allergen. Anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis. Yeah. Yep. That, that, easy, easy way to think of it, Casey. How, I like how'd that, that go? Did that so, go okay? That went okay. I okay. Mean, <laughs> I can't do more than three things. All right. All right. And a couple of combinations. So you can have no allergen, wheezing, and hypotension, and that's potentially anaphylaxis. Hmm. That's interesting. But there's no rash. Doesn't there have to be a rash, Dr. Dixon? No. Up 10 to 15% of these patients won't have a, a rash on initial presentation. So the rash can never come around or it can be delayed in some cases where the rash is not evidently apparent on your initial clinical examination. And it's not just hives. Remember, angioedema is a skin manifestation or mucous membrane or skin manifestation of the anaphylactic reaction. And again, hypotension plus allergen equals anaphylaxis. anaphylaxis. What about triggers, Chief Hall? Are we always going to see a trigger? Not necessarily. Um, I can pull a couple calls right out of my head where it was unknown etiology. Family so, doesn't know, patient doesn't know, but he's presenting with angioedema and wheezing. So skin plus hypotension or respiratory without an allergen equals anaphylaxis. The other thing with the allergen, and this is the classic board case, and I've actually taken care of one of these. That was one of the more harrowing cases I can remember from my career period at the end of the, that, that sentence. Sometimes we don't know the allergen because the patient is an extremist, but by the time we arrive, it's the classic found down lawnmower man, the VF from a acute coronary occlusion. Is the patient in anaphylactic shock because they stepped on a wasp? and no one's home and the neighbor called and you're never going to get that story so don't let lack of rash and lack of trigger cause you to toss anaphylaxis totally from your differential yeah, that's, you that's a lesson the, the key to that is you have to keep a differential in someone where there is no apparent rash there is no apparent allergen you got to start start the bundle mm -hmm. start the care bundle for a cpr or a critical patient and then run that differential try to get a history try to figure out what happened put them on a three lead Mm -hmm. Right? Do they have some malignant dysrhythmia? What put try to put it all together, but just remember to keep anaphylaxis in your differential. I think that's the big point of this is we forget about it. So I want to talk a little bit about deficiency in anaphylaxis urgency, which is something that's very prevalent in the literature. We know this happens, and I see this one every day. I will let both of y'all speak to it because Dr. Dixon, you have it from the ED's perspective, Chief Hall from the field. And there's this idea that we run on a patient, and this disease exists in a spectrum. It doesn't exist in uh, a static state. So let's say we run on one that may be a little on the milder side, but let's give them an allergen. Let's give them some vomiting and urticaria. If we go back to our definition, we've got two systems and an allergen. That's anaphylaxis. We've got vomiting. We've got skin. We've got peanuts. Whatever we want to do. We ate some, we ate some peanuts that we shouldn't have. And you arrive, and the patient's kind of holding that middle ground. Has anyone seen, I know you both have, so this is a loaded question. <laughs> I'm going to get the answer. Let's, let's start with some Benadryl. Let's, let's give some steroids. Let's, let's see if those work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that will happen. Well, let's get a blood pressure. Well, it's not bad yet. Or let's get another one. Let's get another one. Let's get another one. We're on the fifth blood pressure, and then he's finally sick, but he's already fallen off the, the wagon. That's when you get 90, and you think, oh, that's not real. And you get... 89 and you think mm -hmm. oh that's not real and you give them 25 of benadryl and some solumedrol what are you doing there well how, how what are you are you doing anything you're helping from the you're patient? helping their itch 
while the patient's <laughs> dying. This is exactly what you're doing. These are not helpful. Yeah. You know, steroids are delayed onset. Mm-hmm. Antihistamines have mm-hmm. no immediate benefit in the things that's killing them, which is their leaky pipes, their hypotension, and their bronchoconstriction. The medicine of choice is epinephrine. I think we we have this in our heads as emergency clinicians to we're afraid of epinephrine in an extent. And I would agree with that back when we gave it. And in our protocols, mea culpa, when we got here and early on, had IV epinephrine until we had a couple of bad outcomes with it. It can mm-hmm. be quite dangerous. So in the end, we can't assume that Benadryl or steroids in the acute phase are going to really help us at all. So we have to get to the epinephrine early. If you look at time to arrest in anaphylaxis patients, if it's a food allergen that stimulates the anaphylaxis, you have about 30 minutes to lay a rest. A bee sting, a venom uh, induced anaphylaxis, 15 minutes. So we don't have time to give the steroid in true anaphylaxis and say, let's wait and see if it works. We're on a really, really tight time crunch. Mm -hmm. And it also doesn't progress linearly. So we can't look at that mild rash with some vomiting and say, well, they're not to angioedema yet, or they're not to wheezing yet, because they can go zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds. And when you look back at these anaphylaxis cases that go bad, and we look at them from a, a, a data standpoint, a data set standpoint, the number one killer of anaphylaxis is delayed or absent epinephrine administration. We've heard you know, Corey Slovis talk about this for most of our career. This is not a new concept. But when you look at reviews of epi use pre-arrest, British reviews showed only 14% epinephrine usage pre-arrest in anaphylaxis patients. If you go to the emergency department and look at our treatment compliance, we hit epinephrine in anaphylaxis about half the time. So this is not a, a parent's or an EMS or pediatrician problem. This is all of us in emergency care. So let's come back to IM versus IV epinephrine piece that you just mentioned and let's be a little more specific in that we do have some IV epinephrine options for anaphylaxis here at MCHD. The key statement that I want to make is that there's never ever an indication to give an awake patient 300 micrograms, 500 micrograms, or God forbid, 1,000 micrograms or a milligram in an IV bolus form. Couldn't agree more. I mean, our our algorithm here is 0.3 in the adult patient IM. You can repeat up to two more times. But while I was doing that, Chief Hall just made a, a really good point during the break, right? These are sick patients. They've already declared. Get ahead of the game. Have someone mixing an epinephrine drip if you have that available in your service. Start with a push dose. Mm-hmm. They're easy, easy, easy to mix up. If you haven't uh, had it in your protocols, here at MCHD, we have an easy algorithm. You take one milligram of one-to-one or one-to-ten, put it in a 100cc bag, of either saline or D5, and you draw up 10 cc's, that is 100 micrograms in the entire syringe or 20 micrograms per ml. I'm sorry, 10, 10 micrograms per ml. So we give two mls to an adult, one to a child. So I mean, it's an easy, easy way for dilute epinephrine. Big difference between dilute epinephrine and straight up epinephrine. So, so you give that, I mean, you give that first IM dose, Chief, and you're mixing your push dose and considering your drip straight away, right? Pretty much. I mean, if, if that patient is that urgent, I think it, I think if you have the differentials there and you have the plan, you, you see this is anaphylaxis, you're already drawing up epi. 
you're already going to delegate to your crews. Just get ready for it to get worse. You know it's going to get worse. And if it doesn't, then good. <laughs> then it's a 100cc bag of fluid and a milligram of epi that you're out, which I would argue to be prepared and proactive mm-hmm. in these patients. When you've got minutes, we just talked. We don't have hours. They have to be ready. So in a lot of protocols in emergency departments, I have seen and I have gotten nervous and said, this, this patient's sick. We need to give them more IV epi. All you do is you increase your overdose rate tenfold or higher. You increase your adverse event rate tenfold or higher, and you don't improve your outcome at all. So you really want to make that progression from IM to continuous drip with potentially in an EMS setting, a push dose or two as you're bridging over to that drip. If you're a sub-Q holdout out there, there's been some sub-Q epi in various protocols here and there over my career. Much, much, much slower in onset than true IM dosing. So we want to stay away from sub-Q. We want to stay away from IV bolus epi in our treatment uh, protocol, in our treatment pathway. What about the patient was was too young? The patient was too old? We had a seven-month-old that our first responder fire crew treated with uh, I am epi just a couple of weeks ago. Amazing yeah, case. Amazing, yeah. amazing case. I think these are the ones that scare us, right? This is why we're here myth busting and why we're here to talk about this is that we look at those patients and go, oh my gosh, I don't want to give this older elderly gentleman a cardiovascular complication. Gosh, he's got vascular disease or he's got COPD. When in fact, the rate of cardiovascular complications in these patients is really relatively low, about three and a half percent. So my view, and, and I think you put it in the notes, Casey, is I would rather have some angina, right, and be alive for my anaphylaxis than be dead. And the truth be told, the vast majority of these complications, as Dr. Patrick alluded to, come from undiluted straight-up epinephrine, not dilute epinephrine, not IM epinephrine, but straight epinephrine in the vein, quite dangerous. And we've seen it here in our own service. Probably good to talk about COPD and asthma and epi just for a second. Mm -hmm. We see this not infrequently, and this is a spot with the respiratory component of obstructive lung disease where we could get a differential maybe potentially turned around. So, yes, wheezing is going to be on your list for COPD and asthma, and wheezing is going to be on your list for anaphylaxis. If this ends up being COPD and you think it's anaphylaxis and you give some epi, patient first, no problem. If you write in your chart, this is a COPD patient, and you're clear that it's COPD, there is absolutely no indication for IM epinephrine in those patients, no indication that there's benefit. So just a quick aside there, if you're unsure and you think anaphylaxis is there, 0.3 of IM epi. But we don't want to give IM epi indiscriminately to all of our COPD patients thinking that we're doing right and I think this is a common common misconception in the field in protocols the way protocols are written I see it given all the time in COPD uh, or anybody that wheezes right just remember for your listeners out there you can listen to the old podcast about asthma about COPD but asthma the big clear thing about it reversible it is reversible physiology right it's reversible bronchoconstriction Mm -hmm. and inflammation copd it's obstructive chronic destructive right so they have changes they do have wheezing they both have wheezing and some bronchoconstriction but they also have irreversible changes so the architecture is different as dr patrick said i am epinephrine 
no benefit in COPD. But if you have a patient, Chief, that you think, ah, is this anaphylaxis or is this asthma? I'm not sure what to do here. What do you do? Start out with the opening gamut, which is epi. Yep. And you're, you're, you're right. right both times. Either yep. way there. Severe asthma, mm-hmm. check. Anaphylaxis, epi, check. check. Done. There's Done. some There's some data out there. There's some case studies and reports of younger patients, like our seven-month-old, with auto-injectors, whether you have an auto-injector or really with, with any intramuscular injection, because they're smaller and the depths and the distances are shorter, of IO administration of epi as a quote-unquote complication. We need to be careful. We do a lot of pediatric IOs here at MCHD. We have a ton of experience with IM medication here at MCHD. Honestly, I think we're good enough to avoid this, but we'll go back to your angina comment. I'd rather be alive with angina than dead and chest pain free from my anaphylaxis. I honestly think from a seven month old, a year old standpoint, if we happen to give it IO, I'd rather give it IO than not give it at all. Right. I agree. Yeah. And I, I think Definitely. in our case uh, here in the county that we reviewed with the FROs, the good, the good news was that child went from, you know, peri-arrest with multi-system dysfunction and hypotension and shock to essentially fixed by the time the, the ALS transport unit got there. There was no need to give follow-up. That was a great story. The, the, the kid had obvious potential allergen. The kid had wheezing and just diffuse rash. So it was a clear checkbox, but that's a, that's a pretty big trigger to pull for, for a, uh, yeah, they did for really, a fire crew. really well. So, mm-hmm. Just so, jump, just got the diagnosis yeah. straight away, treated the kid kid was vastly vastly better by the time the uh, ALS crew got there we're going to talk about one last fallacy or sort of false hope from our standpoint in the emergency setting and that is that parents people patients are going to use their own at home well they've got EpiPens they're going to use them they're not they're not going to use them I mean docs don't prescribe them correctly there's a just abysmal rate of EpiPen prescribing rates from both pediatricians and emergency physicians when patients come in with anaphylaxis, do they get an EpiPen to go home with? They should. But they, it, <laughs> but they don't. Because, and if they did, Dr. Patrick, they'd have to like uh, sell their Tesla to buy said epinephrine pen. Yeah, that's another topic for another day. <laughs> Pe- people get the teaching, and then they're afraid to give themselves the shots. Uh, we take that for granted. We give shots all day, every day. People don't like to jab themselves. They're afraid they're going to hit a blood vessel or hit a nerve or damage something. So people, they fear them. The training wears off. This has been documented that in primary care offices when patients get EpiPen administration training. In the short term, they can reproduce that. As time spaces out, they lose the skill. That's a shocker to all of us here who are involved in EMS teaching and training. If you don't train on something, you don't use a device, and you don't think through dry runs, guess what? The skill degrades. And then lastly, nobody can find them. You're supposed to keep one. You know, if you have – I have – I have. Uh, anaphylactic stepchildren who I love very much and I've tried to give them almond milk and peanut butter throughout their life which is just parental fail but I just I, I, they were, I'm not used to having allergic kids so I'd always be like hey you want a peanut butter sandwich and my wife like you want to kill them <laughs> that'd be cool they everywhere we go this is the first on the podcast yeah. Dr. Well, Patrick really is a serial killer no it's just <laughs> I, you know, there's not five. There's one. Well, we everywhere we go and everywhere we everywhere we've gone over you know over our travel lives vacations is there's we we always 
think about where's the EpiPens. But my wife and I are emergency physicians, and I can't tell you the number of times we've end up, ended up in an Airbnb or a hotel somewhere without the EpiPen. Not because we're negligent. I, I may be negligent trying to feed them almond milk and peanut butter, mm-hmm. but she's on top of it. She, she is thoroughly on top of it. And even with two, two physicians traveling with very allergic kids, there are times when we forget the second EpiPen. So when we're not at home and we're at insert the water park or the national park or wherever we are, people can't find them. So what's that mean in the end? Long story short, it's on us, the EMS Mm -hmm. providers, the pre-hospital providers, the emergency department folks to make sure that we're just assuming that patients don't have them or they've forgotten how to use them or they've forgotten them at home. And I am epi, I am epi, I am epi. So a little bit of hodgepodge, a couple points that didn't really fit in the myth busters I wanted to hit on before we wrap up. There's a second piece of this puzzle. You talked about treating the leaky pipes. Want to make sure fluids are going to, because this is anaphylactic shock. In our process of IMFE conversion to push dose and drip, that fluids are going as well. There was some really interesting stuff in this article. I'd urge you to read it about the vagal tone and the postural tone loss in these patients. Don't stand these people up. Mm-hmm. There are tons of case reports out there of especially pediatric patients with anaphylaxis. 14-year-old looks well, has got some rash, got some vomiting. Stand them up to go from their couch to the stretcher, and they arrest. Not just they collapse, but they arrest from that loss of vascular tone. It kind of shocked me. I never thought about that. So do not stand or move these patients. These are patients that we want to keep supine. We want to pick them up from wherever they are onto our stretcher and get their legs up. This is one where passive leg raise can really be your friend. This is the learning point for me that I never knew about or thought about. And I can see myself if you're in a busy emergency room. You got a anaphylactic, mild-looking little, you know, little kid, ten-year-old, eight-year-old, twelve-year-old in the in the waiting room, and you want to get them over to the triage bed to take a look, and you. You stand them up to walk them over. That's that's bad news. That patient needs to be recognized as anaphylactic shock and put on their back and potentially have their legs raised. I, have you ever seen a patient fall out? I don't know that I've ever seen it, but man, I don't want to be the, I don't want I don't want to see that. So I'm going to be very mindful of their position. I always thought this was familial. This was just sort of a point for me. It's a little mythbustery. I thought it was too. Yeah, no, no real evidence of, of familial nature here with, with anaphylaxis, which was kind of surprising. I always, always also thought that these built on each other. Right. That, that if you got exposed once, then, mm-hmm. then you re-exposed, it would be worse. No evidence for that. So just sort of, hmm, that's a thought. I also would have guessed if I would have asked you guys, what's the most common allergic food I would have said my my nut. Yeah, mur- I would have said nuts and then stings are the number yeah. one killer. My, pe- my peanut butter peanut butter yeah. murder attempts. I said almost all of ours one. are nuts <laughs> or stings. In the UK, the number one is milk, actually. So which actually was, hints, you know, we talked about the other my, kind of major and minor symptoms, vomiting. But in you, we have to think about that, right? Mm-hmm. We don't think about this diagnosis. You know, kid drinking milk now has vomiting and a rash anaphylaxis that's it and in the end these patients are going to go home a lot of times we observe them they get better they go home sometimes depending on their progression they get admitted to the hospital but if we send them home we have to tell them when to use their epipen at home this is one you probably had conversations with patients before chief this is we always get asked 
when do I use this thing? If I wasn't supposed to use it today, when do I use it? And I tell people breathing compromise or angioedema is, is my trigger um, to tell them to, to use it. And also, if you have breathing problems and or angioedema, to call 911 straight away. So anaphylaxis is a clinical diagnosis. Paramedics, emergency physicians, pediatricians, no matter the environment, should have the same diagnostic accuracy and capabilities because there's no labs involved here. We didn't talk about a lab. We didn't talk about an x-ray or a CT scan. So remember, what are the big three? Hypotension, angioedema, wheezing, bronchoconstriction. If you have shock and an allergen, you've got anaphylaxis. If you have no allergen but two of the other big three? Anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis. Acute plus respiratory plus hypotension equals anaphylaxis. And we're going to go with what's our treatment of choice, Chief Hall? I am epinephrine. And if that doesn't work, I am epinephrine. And if that doesn't work, I am epinephrine. And we're (laughs) prepping during that time with push dose, potentially a drip of epinephrine ready to go, along with co-administered IV fluid bolus. People die from epi. Ah, people die from epi deficiency in anaphylaxis. Not save, save me there. Old, young, in between. When we look at these in the rearview mirror retrospectively, they don't die because they got too much epi. They die because they didn't get it. Fluids are going to be key. Move to a drip after three doses. If you don't get to steroids or antihistamines, does anyone care? Not me. The British don't even care so much that they took it out of their algorithm. So don't get delayed or blinded by trying to let steroids or antihistamines work. So that's that's a little myth busting for us today. Anything else y'all want to add? No, great piece. Great great follow-up piece to the initial uh, epinephrine piece. Yeah. I like it. I'm going to just one more time beg y'all, go to the show notes, pull the PDF up, take a look at this article. It doesn't have stats. It doesn't have the normal journal article sleep-inducing uh, methods and results section. This is some good stuff that's very evidence-based and yet practical at the same time. So if there's one that I put in the show notes over the entire time we've done this, this is one of the most useful one for practicing clinicians out there. So thanks for joining us, Chief Hall. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Dixon. Y'all listeners, thanks for joining. As always, if you have questions or concerns, please email us, podcast at mchd-tx.org. I've done that 140 some odd times and almost forgot the email right there. Leave us a like or review wherever you listen to podcasts. We like five stars. Keep us smiling and happy. We'll be back with a new episode soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.